again, thank you to all of you who volunteered. I, I hope that you were blessed by being a blessing to others. And let me share a story or two I'm with you that may be an encouragement to you. At the end of the conference yesterday uh, afternoon, the woman sitting behind me, I, I actually thought I was being attacked because I started to walk away and my jacket was grabbed from behind. And I thought, all these security guys here and nobody's protecting me at this, <laughs> at this moment. But she turned me around and she had tears in her eyes and she said, thank you so much for doing this. And she asked me to thank our church. She said, I've already got October 16th and 17th on my calendar. So you are being a blessing um, to them. I want to say a a special thank you. Um, This is a little odd to those who carried our pulpit and it didn't get used. But it was for it was not purposeless. I got Keith and Kristen Getty's signature right under here. So (laughs) thank you for that. We'll, we'll, we'll do something good with it. Pray with me for just a moment. Our Father, we come before you right now, coming to you asking for help and grace as we kind of put the finishing touches, I guess, on our conference concerning worship and turn our thoughts one last time, Lord, to um, what your word says about worship. And we pray this morning that you would impact our hearts, that you would teach us, that you would grow us, ultimately to be better worshipers, to be more in tune with what it means to be a follower of Christ. And we pray these things that he might be honored and glorified. Amen. It was a young man and his little wife, and they had a precious little toddler girl named Mary and Ruth. And they packed little Mary and Ruth into the car, put her in a little car seat, and they drove her downtown, and they took her to the hospital. And it was going to be her last stop on this earth because little Mary and Ruth was dying of leukemia. And so they got a little special facility there, and they would spend the final eight weeks of her life in a children's hospital. And so they had to develop a little routine for their family, and Part of their routine, of course, by necessity, meant that they needed spiritual strength. They needed spiritual nurturing. And so for spiritual strength, the young dad brought two things. He brought his Bible and he brought his hymnal. And each morning, the young dad would hold little Marion in one arm and his hymnal in the other. And he would sing to her. He writes about the experience. He said, Fortunately for me, she was not a music critic, and she always seemed comforted by her dad's voice in song, and the hymns surely helped her father, who knew what she did not know, that she had virtually no chance of surviving. Well, this young father's name is T. David Gordon, and he would go on to be a pastor and a seminary professor and write an important book called Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns how pop culture rewrote the hymnal. And so that's a very personal thing for him. And in honor of our Steadfast Bible Conference topic on worship, I want to wrap up our thinking considering a a very practical outworking of how we worship God in song. So today I want to talk to you about a challenge to the church, bring back the hymnal. Now, our usual practice here is verse-by-verse exposition of a text, and I hope you'll indulge me today. I want to do something a little bit different. I want to do more of a shepherding talk to get us thinking about the idea of hymns and hymnals. But I want to begin at our 
foundational home base, very familiar verse to us. It was brought up numbers of times. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3.16. This is a very familiar passage to us. And I want to make several observations which I think give us warrant and permission to talk about hymns and hymnals. Now the seeker-sensitive church movement really had its peak in the late 90s and early 2000s. But it has created a whole new culture of what's normal. It's created, a, in fact, a whole new language of ecclesiology that's considered normal now. As one pastor of a relevant church wrote, uh, by the way, a relevant church is a church where most people are under 40 and they matter more than everybody else. That's what makes them relevant. He wrote that the church should give up its traditional music in order to reach the current generation who's listening to completely different styles. In other words, get rid of your hymnal and stop singing hymns. And that is still prevailing wisdom today. Well, there's a problem with this. The Bible commands that we sing hymns. It's not an option. It expects that the worshipers of Christ do so. In Colossians 3.16 let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This verse has one dominant verb. It's an imperative. It's a command. And it means let dwell. Let dwell the word of Christ in you richly. This is the dominant imperative. And then it's followed by three participles, three verbs that are dependent on this dominant verb. And these participles explain how we are to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, how we are to let dwell the word of Christ. First, teaching one another in all wisdom that we're about to be about the business of learning the word of God, that knowledge matters. The second participle verb, admonishing one another in all wisdom, we're about to be about the business of Applying the word of God. We don't just learn it, we apply it. And third, we're singing. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We're about to be about the business of singing the word of God. And these all work in concert with one another. We sing the word of God as expressed in the psalms. That's verbatim scripture set to music. We're to be about the business of singing the word in hymns. These are songs which proclaim and rehearse great doctrinal truths from Scripture and were to be about the business of singing spiritual songs. These are songs which encourage us to live spiritually obedient lives. This is what we're commanded to do. The, the three participles of teaching, admonishing, and singing, they're all part of the command, the imperative, let dwell the word of Christ in you richly. So why talk about hymnals? Isn't that a preference issue? Well, because a hymnal contains all three types of songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we cover all bases with that. Now, before we really get rolling, let me be clear on one issue here. Talking about hymns and hymnals is not a discussion about musical style. I, I have a degree in music, so I know a little about musical style. That's not the issue, although I will return to that thought a little bit later. A terrible song can be played in a traditional style, and a fabulous hymn can be played with a terrific worship band. So it's not about style. It is about substance. And so with your permission, and given the context that 
as part of letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, we are to sing hymns. I want to explore this topic as kind of the cap off of our conference this weekend. Just for a little bit here, it's kind of a, a, a long shepherding moment. Now, I am aware that preaching a sermon called A Challenge to the Church, Bring Back the Hymnal, is easy in a church with hymnals. I understand that. There you have one within reach of you, and we're going to use them in a few minutes, by the way. But I want you to understand the thinking and the rationale. We don't have hymnals because we've always done it that way. As a matter of fact, at Grace Bible Church, we haven't always done it that way. Your hymnals are still fairly new. There's a few coffee stains on them, but that means that you're worshiping at home. That's okay. I understand that. But perhaps we can understand why we do what we do, and maybe this message will be passed along to fellow believers, maybe make a difference in other local bodies. Darren and I were trying to count how many churches we know of in our area that still use hymnals, and we couldn't think of very many. There aren't that many anymore. So I want to explore three questions with you, just kind of a shepherding time here. And the last question is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. First question, what happened to the hymnals? Second question, why should we bring hymnals back? And the third question, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, does God believe in hymnals? So first question, let's, let's just explore this together. What happened to the hymnals? Now, there's no way to definitively find one reason hymnals began disappearing from churches in the past decades, but we can observe some, some factors that contributed to their disappearance in many circles. I want to just give you five of them, and these have contributed to the disappearance of the hymnal. First of all, the seeker-sensitive redefinition of worship. The seeker-sensitive redefinition of worship. Churchgoers in many traditions used to proudly bring their Bibles and their hymnals with them to church. That in many traditions, the church didn't own the hymnals, the people did. And if you wanted to sing, you had to bring your hymnal with you. It was considered a treasure, both in the church sanctuary and in the home. In many denominations, an engraved hymnal was what you got as a gift when you were baptized. Pews were constructed with a rack on the back to hold hymnals. Only later was it used to hold Bibles because people stopped bringing their Bibles to church. Because worship was considered by the church to be something that the Christian engaged in and was, was for God, we brought our hymnals. But the seeker-sensitive church movement sought to redefine worship. Now worship wasn't something for God. Worship was a marketing tool. Worship was a way to get people to increase attendance of non-believers who the, the goal for them was to come and, quote, enjoy the worship. But as I said Friday evening at the concert, by definition, the non-Christian is incapable of worshiping God. And so to try to create a, a worship experience for a non-believer is illogical and it's not theological, theologically tenable. You can't do it. So the hymnals had to go. The seeker-sensitive movement didn't want guests to feel uncomfortable if they couldn't read music or, or sing hymns they didn't, they, they were hard to learn. They wanted music which would be instantly singable and didn't require much effort. Thus, you repeated the same two lines about 597 times because it was easier. And they certainly didn't want the supposed stigma that went with hymnals as being religious and old-fashioned and not what young people do. And now what happened, there was a major shift toward what do people get out of worship instead of what does God get out of worship? And now, because the gospel alone has become insufficient to bring the lost to Christ, 
As one author wrote, quote, we have a visual tech-reliant society, so we must use media to bring people to Jesus. Go, therefore, into all the world and use media to bring people to me. I'm sure that's what the Bible meant. The writer goes on to say, quote, in a culture of modern technology, I find it hard to believe that churches that don't have those modern things ever grow at all. But we have to be moving forward in all ways to bring people out to church and ultimately be saved by Christ. Plus, I don't think anyone gave their life to God by singing a song. I've baptized people who gave their life to Christ singing a song. Did you catch what the goal of worship has become? It's become to grow the church. No. The goal of worship is for the redeemed to proclaim the greatness of God. There's a second factor in the disappearance of the hymnal. The exaltation of informality in worship. The exaltation of informality in worship. Formal worship became associated with liturgies performed by congregations of primarily unsaved people in denominations that had long since abandoned the Bible and abandoned the biblical gospel and all that was left was the shell of religiosity. And so instead of emphasizing right theology only, there was also an emphasis on deformalizing Worship in everything from how the pastor dresses to getting rid of any sense of organization to a worship service to getting rid of the pulpit and replacing it with sleek lecterns or park benches. That's a case of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know what kind of pulpits the reformers preached from? They look like battleships because the word of God was the most important thing. You had to take a staircase to get to the pulpit. Even in the independent Bible church movement going all the way back to the 1920s in an effort to get back to verse-by-verse theological exposition of Scripture, the formality of preaching was replaced often by the informality of teaching in which a sermon was now really just another Sunday school lesson. And what happened when even Bible preachers began denigrating the idea of preaching and began lecturing instead, guess what else went out the door? The hymnals went too. Part of the effort to create a more informal worship atmosphere meant getting rid of the hymnals, uh, yet we still wanted to maintain a connection to the most familiar hymns. So what happened? Well, churches coined a new word for doing this. We will sing choruses. What does it mean? Well, because so many in the church were familiar with the choruses of a hymn, the chorus of a hymn is the repeated part after each verse The church could now be more informal and still connected to the past by singing choruses. But the problem was that this cut the guts out of the theology of the hymns. A chorus of a hymn generally is meant to be a response to the theology presented in the verses. Let me give you an example. You probably have this one memorized. What turned into the chorus Turn your eyes upon Jesus. You probably all know this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But without the verses, this becomes a response to nothing. And now it becomes just a call to turn your eyes upon Jesus as a temporary emotion to make you feel better in the moment. But what was that chorus responding to in the original hymn? Verse 1, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. This is trusting Christ when you suffer. 
The second verse says, Through death into life everlasting, He passed and we follow Him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. This is trusting Christ's death and His resurrection and assurance of salvation. The third verse teaches us, His word shall not fail you. He promised, believe Him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, His perfect salvation to tell. This is a call to trust the perfection of the gospel and to evangelize the lost. Now, singing, turn your eyes upon Jesus has such meaning. There's a response, but just singing the chorus, it chopped the heart out of the hymn. And it made it nothing more than an appeal to feel an emotion. There's a third factor in the disappearance of the hymnal. We'll call this one the idolatry of the present over past. The idolatry of the present over the past. Words like new, original, fresh, modern, and the big one, contemporary, began to dominate ideas concerning music worship. And here's the irony for you. The word contemporary has been used for so many decades now that contemporary sounds old. How do you deal with that? Because the church will never keep up the, with the culture and the church isn't called to try to do so. But in the effort to be new, original, fresh, modern, contemporary, the idea was put forth that to be in the present is preferred over the dusty old past. Because apparently, whatever we've figured out in the last 12 months must be better than 2,000 years of historic Christianity. Whatever song was written last week must be better than some ancient hymn written 400 years ago and has only been sung by a billion Christians since. So now, two to three generations of churchgoers have been raised in churches believing that new is better and old is bad. This is the same crowd that has little or no interest in church history and therefore both doctrine and practice end up having no connection to orthodox believers and orthodox churches of the past. And in fact, this model and this paradigm now prefers what is new to what is old. This is an arbitrary decision based on nothing, based on no context, based on no authority whatsoever. And in fact, it reaches the point of flat-out contempt for anything that is old in the church, and can I say this with all tenderness, including church members. And this got mixed in with the seeker-sensitive movement. One of the big principles in the seeker-sensitive movement is the idea of target audience. That we are targeting a particular demographic that we believe will grow our church in an exciting way by pleasing that demographic and by placating what they want that the unbeliever of that demographic is to tell the church, here's what kind of worship we want. But what's the target demographic almost 100% of the time in those churches? The youngest and second youngest generation and whatever they're being named in that generation. I never heard of a seeker-sensitive church plant advertise, we're targeting unbelievers over the age of 75. They don't ever say that. Why? Why? Because their mindset in everything they do is to value the new over the old, including human beings. One church growth expert famously said, focus on who you want to reach, not on who you want to keep. So when Peter commanded the elders of the church in 1 Peter 5 to shepherd the flock of God among you, he really meant don't focus on them, but focus on the new people you don't have yet. No. There's a fourth factor in the disappearance of the hymnal. We'll call this one a consumer-driven measurement of music worship. 
a consumer-driven measurement of music worship. When a typical guest or even a church member in a local church says, this church has good worship, what do they generally mean? They generally mean that the people up here on the platform are skilled musicians. That's generally what they mean. Now, there's no biblical admonition against specific instruments, although I know there's a verse somewhere in the Bible that says, thou shalt not have an accordion in church. I haven't found it, but I know it's there somewhere. But the advent of the worship band began somewhat to be a competition to be like the world, not, not just because they're great instruments, but we're competing with the world. And the church is blessed enough like we are to have a great many skilled and competent musicians it makes it feel like they have good worship. But this false measure can be very difficult on the the faithful church with 60 members who can barely scrape together one guy who plays the clarinet and another one that used to play the tuba. They they can't measure up to this false standard because their music sounds more like a bad New Orleans Dixieland band with most people calling in sick. They just don't sound that good. Does that mean that church doesn't have good worship? According to Colossians 3.16, the measure of so-called good worship is not the worship band, but the congregational singing. Show me a megachurch with a fabulous band where the people are looking around and drinking coffee instead of singing. They have terrible worship. Show me a little church that's meeting in some little tiny building, barely pulling enough together to even meet together, and yet singing with all of their heart to the Lord. They have good worship. Now, the Bible prescribes the use of every possible instrument we can imagine, but the purpose has always been to accompany singing. Does a church have good worship? If they're letting the word of Christ dwell in them richly by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, then yes, absolutely. Let me give you one more factor in the disappearance of the hymnal, the charismatic movement. Charismatic movement going back to the first of the early 1900s, then the really big push beginning in the in the mid 60s or so, which has really never let up. Hymnals now got in the way for two reasons. They got in the way of the new drive for ecstatic spiritual experiences in the church service, and, and you needed all your hands and your feet to to accomplish that task. And they also got in the way because very very um, uncharacteristic of what they wanted. Hymnals contained something very inconvenient, and that was theology. And we couldn't have that. And so now the really holy people had their hands raised, waving around, dancing around the sanctuary, falling down, being supposedly slain in the spirit, and all the other nonsense that began to accompany what still today they call, quote, a spirit-filled worship service. And the hymnal gets in the way of that. The worship service was meant now to be open to, quote, the move of the spirit, meaning whatever emotion those in charge were feeling at the moment was where worship was going to go, completely ignoring the commands of Paul in the New Testament that worship was to be orderly and organized. The big topic, still today, still a hot topic today. If you Google the topic spirit-filled worship, your computer will fry. It will just come alive. How to cultivate spirit-led worship. How to create spirit-led worship. How to generate spirit-led worship. One church leader writes this advice to music worship leaders. When I am leading worship, I try to be sensitive to what the Spirit is doing within me. The Spirit knows what Jesus wants to happen in worship to glorify the Father, so the Spirit sends me signals I can pick up on my spiritual radar. So an entire church 
is depending on some guy going, hang on a second, I'm getting something here. Hang on a minute. Small problem. If I'm cultivating worship, creating worship, generating worship, that's not really spirit-led, is it? You want spirit-led worship? Here's what the Holy Spirit said. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You can write in the white space there, what part of this did you not understand? That's spirit-led worship because those are instructions from the Spirit of God. Well, those are just some factors that may help answer the question, what happened to the hymnals? Let me give another question to consider. Why should we bring hymnals back? Now, I, I know that right now all of you have a hymnal within your reach, and so I am preaching to the choir in the most literal sense possible right now. But I want you to grasp the intentionality of the use of hymnals. Let me give you a few reasons for the great value of the hymnal. Now, before I do, obviously, we use projected words at times as well. We did this morning. They're not inherently better or worse. They have their uses. It works well for singing with the Lord's table. It allows us to, you can't hold a hymnal and a cup at the same time. That's difficult, and we understand that. It allows us to sing new songs and hymns without waiting for a new hymnal to be printed. And it allows us to, as we did this morning, clap and use our own hands as percussion, which is, uh, certainly has precedence in Scripture. But I would submit that projected words and printed words are best used in a church that is still grounded in a hymnal as a home base. So let me give you some reasons to value the hymnal. And some of them may surprise you. First reason, hymnals put music in the hands of the people, not the church. Do you ever think about this? By having only projected words available to the church member, the church has essentially taken possession of worship music, much as the Roman Catholics before the Reformation took sole possession of the Bible and didn't want it in the hands of the common personal. So by making words only projected or printed, now the church owns the music instead of you owning the music. By the way, hymnals never break down. The wrong slide never appears. The PowerPoint projector's bulb in the hymnal never goes out one time. Here's a second reason to value the hymnal. Hymnals elevate singing over emotionalism. Hymnals elevate singing over emotionalism. You're singing theology with whatever emotion may accompany that, but you need truth because truth will last when your feelings will fail you. It keeps music in worship from just being a pipeline of warm feelings Going toward God instead is proclamation, it's encouragement. It's a rehearsal of spiritual realities. And the, the great thing is you need to sing a hymn when you're feeling exactly the opposite of what the hymn is saying. That's when you need it. There's a third reason to value the hymnal. Hymnals protect sound doctrine. Hymnals protect sound doctrine. Why is that? Because it's printed and it's hard to get rid of it. In fact, the heretic Arius in the 4th century attempted to use music to promote heresy. Arius believed that Jesus Christ was a created being. He was condemned by several church councils. He is the forefather of the modern-day Jehovah's Witness movement. To spread his teaching, he didn't just teach, he wrote songs. And he popularized his idea with common people because if they could sing his theology, they would remember his theology. 
And on worship and festival, festival days in the city of Constantinople, Arians would meet in public and sing these songs all night long. And they would go around town and gather people and teach them the songs and say, sing this with us. Well, the early church father, John Chrysostom, he said, enough of this. He believed in the power of the song and the power of the hymn. And so he feared people would be led astray. So you know what he did? He organized the world's first ever battle of the bands. And he brought choirs out to sing against the Arians and to sing right doctrine. And in fact, it actually turned into riots and people got in fights over this because they understood whoever has the music has the theology. And for basically a thousand years, the Roman Catholic religion stole congregational singing then and turned singing into something priests did and the people just listened to. But at the Reformation, men like John Huss and Martin Luther were determined to return congregational singing in large part to reverse the terrible theology of the Roman Catholic deception. And now instead of listening to songs about Mary sung in Latin, the people were singing songs about Christ and about the cross and about salvation sung in their own language. And so the hymnal was the tool to protect the doctrines of grace. What's our hymnal called? The hymns of what? Grace. Here's a fourth reason to value the hymnal. Hymnals make songs less disposable. If I asked you to right now, could you name the top five worship songs on the last, of the last five years? Anybody remember them? Nope. And you couldn't agree on what they were. The complaint is often given that hymnals are immediately outdated. Good. Good. I want to sing songs by dead men because their theology lasted their lifetime. Hymnals are a collective statement of faith and you can't change the theology of a hymnal once it's printed. You can't do it. It is well with my soul now, it is well with my soul tomorrow, and it will be well with my soul at the end of my life. And when a new hymn is recognized by the church as so rich and timeless that it makes its way into a hymnal, it affirms that this is a hymn that should be sung for generations. In our own hymnal, there are a couple of dozen hymns by the Gettys. They're recognized as really the modern hymn writers of our time, just as God has raised up hymn writers for every generation. And trust me, unless Christ returns first, the church of Jesus Christ will be singing in Christ alone a century from now. They still will be. Here's a fifth reason to value the hymnal. Hymns accompany your life as one of your richest treasures. Hymns accompany your life as one of your richest treasures, and the hymnal helps keep them with you. We gain a deep knowledge of songs that we've sung literally hundreds and hundreds of times. And instead of merely trying to create an instant emotional attachment through a really entertaining rendition of a new song, which you'll hear three times in your life, you weave together into your heart these hymns through massive repetition over decades. And so that now just the opening lines of certain hymns draw you to the Lord instantly and and bring to bear years and years of the growth of your faith all at once. If you will live in your hymnal, then when you hear, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. All that you know about the faithfulness of God immediately comes rushing forward into your heart because it's so deeply associated with that hymn. Now you might say, well, I don't know this or that hymn very well. Listen, don't listen to that. 
That is the consumer instant gratification mentality that our culture is trying to lie to you that there exists an instantaneous path to spiritual depth and maturity. There does not exist an instantaneous path to spiritual depth and maturity. You plow the ground of your heart over and over and over and over again by singing the hymns of our faith so many countless times that they weave themselves into your heart. There's no shortcut to that. And I don't care how amazing the worship band is, there is no substitute for you personally singing those hymns hundreds and hundreds of times. Let me give you another reason. This may surprise you. Hymns are the universal language of Christians. Hymns are the universal language of Christians. It takes decades and sometimes centuries for a hymn to become familiar enough to stay around, but once it stays, it's never going away. The choir that Pastor Darren led for the past five months in preparation for Friday night's concert was made up of people from numbers of different churches, and yet they bonded together over the singing of hymns that they had in common. They bonded so much together that many of them said, can we do this again next year? Not just because it was fun to sing, but because of the truths, the truths they were singing. When many of us went to the Nashville Sing Conference just a few weeks ago, they held a hymn sing at the Grand Ole Opry. That was amazing. 4,000 people, none of whom knew each other, all singing the same hymns in four-part harmony without music. Why were they able to do that? Because back home they had these. And they were able to do that. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Let me give you another reason. I'm not going to tell you how many. I don't want to discourage you. (laughs) Hymnals allow us to tangibly demonstrate the love and unity of the body of Christ. Hymnals allow us to tangibly demonstrate the love and unity of the body of Christ. How? The hymnal allows for musical harmony. That the church sings different parts but creates one unified sound of worship together. Hymns are written to be able to be sung with the singing itself as its own accompaniment. If necessary, we literally don't need instruments. We can praise with our voices all by ourselves and the hymnal allows us to do this in rich harmony. And the hymnal proclaims that music worship is first and foremost with the voice. And why is this? Listen carefully. This is so important. The voice is the only musical instrument that can proclaim truth and it is the only musical instrument that literally lives inside the worshiper. You were built with an instrument to worship. By the way, the four-part harmony as we know it is primarily a Western music development, at least according to Western musicologists, but you know what they're finding? Musicologists who research in ancient African music, for example, completely separate from any Western influences, found that in that culture there was developed a natural, unwritten harmony, generally consisting of four parts. Conclusion of one researcher said that the harmonies most represented in ancient African music could be classified as soprano, alto, tenor, and bass. Why? Well, it's obvious. Because God quite literally made the human voice to cover a wide range enough to overlap in and create harmony. In other words, it seems that the major reason our voices have different pitches is to create that unified sound of harmony together in music. And this demonstrates oneness and unity. Let me give you another reason to value hymnals. Hymnals connect you tangibly to your forefathers in the faith. 
They connect you tangibly to your forefathers in the faith. I, I have this little fantasy of a worship leader shouting out to the church how great it is to be new and how terrible the old things are and have John Calvin walk in the door. Say, say that to my face, bucko. No. Christians a century and a half ago were singing it is well with my soul when they were in dire trials and pains. We've been singing amazing grace with our fellow believers for centuries. We've been singing be thou my vision with fellow believers for 1,500 years. I like singing the these and the thous and the thys because these were the very words Christians long since faithful and gone on before us. Those are the very words they said. It reminds you that most of the church is in heaven. We're the exception. Here's another reason to value the hymnal. Number nine, if you're numbering, to discourage yourself. Hymnals encourage, and we talked about this yesterday, hymnals encourage and facilitate family worship. They facilitate family worship. When the hymnals left the churches, guess what else left? Family worship went out the door. And now the idea of a father leading his family in the reading of the Bible and the singing of hymns, that was considered old, that was passé. When the songs were now just projected on a screen, the family didn't have the means to engage in worship unless they, they looked around and hung on to their hymnals. The basic need for family worship is a Bible and a hymnal. Many families have been richly blessed by singing their way through the entire hymnal until the family members have their favorites and know them by hymn numbers. But now, so often, family worship has been relegated to something that the weird Puritans did 300 years ago. But at least in Reformed circles, it seems to be making comeback, a comeback, and this is partly due to a greater push to get the music of our faith into our homes, not just on recordings, but in a way that we can participate. Let me give you one more. Hymnals actually teach music. Hymnals actually teach music. As a trained musician, I find it frankly offensive when anything or anyone attempts to make music just the property of the ones who can play the instruments. Music is the property of the church of Jesus Christ because it was given to us as a gift by God. And by just having words on a screen, no one learns to sing their parts. In many traditions... Churches used to take the responsibility to teach children to read music so that they could sing their parts for the rest of their lives. And hymnals help with that. A a hymnal allows the worshiper to not depend on rote memory to learn a song that the last time we sang it was eight months ago and I'm trying to remember it. Oh, I got it. Oh, it's over. And maybe we'll sing it in eight more months. But now you can participate meaningfully in hundreds and hundreds of hymns and the hymnal will help you musically as much as you need it to. Maybe you have a hymn almost completely memorized. That's great, but maybe you have a a new one that you're not familiar with. You can use the music to help you participate immediately. And by the way, you grandparents, you know what a great thing you can do with all that extra money you have is pay for your grandchildren to have music lessons of some sort. Not so they can go to Carnegie Hall someday, but so that when they're 20, 30, 40, 50, and 60, they can pick up a hymnal and sing. What a gift to give to your children. Listen, With a Bible and a hymnal, you can make your way through life in victory and in faith. When I find myself on my deathbed, I want to hear my loved ones singing. And it needs to be hymns, which 
I've embedded in my heart, my whole life, not some popular song that's been around for a mere decade. Songs that are popular today have no guarantee of standing the test of time, and even if they do, I still need electricity, a PowerPoint projector, and a computer if I'm going to have any chance of hearing something to uplift my soul. In fact, let me demonstrate this. Turn in your hymnals to number 273, and just keep your place there for a moment. So here I am. I'm on my deathbed. I have a poor soul here. And because all of you are so loving and kind and, and you're, you're gracious, you've gathered around me. And there I am. And, and someone says, you know, Pastor Steve loves singing. And he loves the songs of our faith. And somebody else says, you know, one of the most popular worship songs in the past 10 years has been Oceans by Hillsong United. Let's sing it. Okay, I'm on my deathbed. One, two, three, go. Thank you for letting me die without hearing a song. (laughs) Now, maybe a few of you can sing it, but if you don't know it, then you're out of luck. And worse, I'm on my deathbed and I'm out of luck. And my last words are, thanks a lot. You know, and that's it. (laughs) But because of hymnals, someone can say, I know Steve loves Jesus, keep me near the cross. Can we sing it together? Let's sing it together. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Sing your parts. Free to all a healing stream. Flows from Calvary's mountain. Sing, I could die any moment. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever. Till my ransomed soul shall find Rest beyond the river. Isn't that better? Isn't that better? I want to be reminded of Christ. I want to be reminded of the gospel. I want to be reminded that I was a sinner that desperately needed salvation and that God was holy and I was unholy and there was a huge gap between me and Him that couldn't be filled except in the person of Jesus Christ who came before I was ever even born and He died on the cross to save me while I was still His enemy, while I had yet to commit every single sin. He had come to forgive me of every single sin I would commit in all eternity now. I will never, ever, ever, ever be accountable for one single sin and I will stand before God and if it is me on my deathbed, I want you to sing those truths to me so that I might smile and in my final moments as I feel your hands on mine, I might not even notice the difference when your hands become Christ's. Now you might say, boy, you're really pushing the preference issue here. Third question, does God believe in hymnals? Let's define a hymnal. A hymnal proper is a printed collection of theologically rich songs which exalt God and comfort the soul. It's a book. This printed collection includes musical helps and guidance to allow the worshiper to get to know the hymn and to be able to sing it many times in his lifetime. A hymnal covers every major theological topic 
And if you sing it, you cover essentially all the full-orbed view of our great God as creator, savior, and protector, and the hymnal numbers the hymns so as to make them familiar and easy to find. That's a hymnal. I would answer in the affirmative. Does God believe in hymnals? Yes, because he invented the entire idea since our Bible contains an inspired hymnal, the book of Psalms, which in Hebrew means accompanied songs. The Psalms fit all the criteria of a hymnal, or rather a hymnal fits all the criteria of the Psalms. It's a printed collection of theologically rich songs which exalt God and comfort the soul. It includes musical helps and guidance for the original readers of the Psalms, they had terms such as Alamoth and Gitteth and Hagion and Mahalath and Maskil, the most well-known term, Selah, Shemineth, Shigion. All of these gave musical guidance. The Psalms give a full orb theology of our God as creator, savior, and protector. And the Psalms are numbered for ease of remembrance. Technically speaking, the Psalms don't have chapters. They have numbers And your heart immediately is comforted when I just say the words, Psalm 23. What came to your mind? The Lord is my shepherd. A few times in every generation, a hymn is written which will stand the test of time because the Lord clearly uses it to ignite the fire of passion for his glory, which lasts. Not a momentary billboard top 10 song, but one which builds momentum in the church for years and then decades and then centuries Pastor Darren has rightly said that what Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God was to the Reformation Church today in Christ alone is the anthem of the Church of Jesus Christ which stays true to the doctrines of grace. In Christ alone celebrates the Reformation ideal of solus Christus in Christ alone. And this short hymn highlights salvation by grace through Christ, assurance of salvation, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the depravity of mankind and Christ freeing us from sin's grip, the sovereignty of God over all things, including my destiny, and the future heavenly calling of the believer in Christ. In one hymn, soteriology, theology proper, Christology, anthropology, the the theology of mankind, and eschatology, future things. That is what the Apostle Paul meant by let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Amen? Let us pray. Our Father, we come to you now so thankful for the richness of the Word of God. And in the Word of God, you you gave us this command, which happens so very frequently, to sing, to sing unto your name. And Lord God, that is our desire, to know the songs of our faith, because they are the things that we will take with us when sometimes our minds fail us, the, the memory of the songs we have sung and the theology so richly found in them will, in fact, bolster us and keep us going. And so, Lord, we, we give you thanks. We give you praise for all the, the rich songs of the faith. We give you praise for all the men and women of our, our glorious history who have written for us, men like, like John Wesley and Charles Wesley and, and women like Fanny Crosby and so many others, Lord, Isaac Watts and now in our day, Keith and Kristen Getty and 
Matt Papa and others, Lord, who are writing the hymns that literally accompany us to heaven. And so, Lord, I pray for Grace Bible Church that we would never value the new over the old, but we would value Christ over all and we would sing with all of our might so that we might be worshipers that are pleasing to you. Oh, Lord, I pray for every family in this church. Might their shelves be filled with a Bible and with hymnals. Might their coffee tables have Bibles and hymnals on them. Might those be books that are opened in their homes so that when we gather together as Christ's church, as your body, that we are singing together those things we are so richly familiar with and that they comfort and bolster our souls in our time of need. We praise you and we thank you for the gift of song by which we may give back to you that which you have given to us, the rich theology of the truth of the word of God concerning Christ. And so it is our joy to give that gift to you, Lord, which you first gave to us. We bless you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.